Hello and welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and in the previous episode I made the case that it is both possible and desirable to develop much greater love and kindness and compassion in your life. In other words, to sort of open your heart and live in a more open-hearted way. And this is possible only by seeing that love is closer to an activity than an ontology. That is, it's something that one develops and cultivates through causation, through your own actions which take place in relationship to causes and effects. But I left the question of how more or less unanswered. And then I promised at the end of the episode to deal with that kind of question in this episode. So I promised to turn my attention to the question of techniques or methods or practices for developing or cultivating love. And unfortunately, I'm going to break this promise, at least to some degree. Because I could talk about some of the different techniques that I have learned and used and found to work for accomplishing a more open heart, more love in my everyday life. But these are very, very particular to the forms of spiritual training that I've been engaged with for many years. And I think to do this would violate the more open-ended nature of the series. Um, you know, so I really want to retain the fidelity to the impulse of the series, which is not really about being prescriptive, about me telling you what kind of view or tradition or form of practices you should adopt. These kinds of questions are always best answered by the one person who can answer them truly, and that person is you. So instead I'm going to speak much more generally about spiritual or ethical techniques to try and get behind the particulars of techniques which always have a specific context and often a history and a lineage and a tradition and to ask the more general question well, what are spiritual techniques or practices? So to be clear when I say technique I really mean a kind of practice or method that is some form of action that is learned and then repeated until there is some degree of mastery. So you can think a little bit like the techniques or methods connected with an art or a sport, becoming a great guitar player or pianist or golf player or something of that nature. And the point of doing this is to bring a kind of philosophical understanding to the notion of technique itself which I'm going to claim involves two interconnected things. The first thing is that all spiritual techniques or practices function through a combination of intention and repetition. And the second thing is that these are always partly deconstructive and partly constructive. That is, they are roughly about tearing down existing bad or negative mental and emotional patterns and also building new good patterns or perhaps even transcending the need for patterns altogether. So that's what I'm largely going to talk about today. I'm going to stay with the central theme of the last episode, that is the ethics of love, and I'm going to expand a little on the one technique that I did mention in that episode, that being the practice of Tonglen, which is giving and taking meditation.
But, you know, I'm going to use this just as one particular example of this more general principle, which I think is applicable with many other kinds of practices in many different kinds of domains, from the theistic to the dharmic to the secular to the humanist to the psychological and even to those realms I just talked about, the realms of art and sport. So I'm really using the notion of love and the practice of Tonglen as a particular example to highlight this much more general principle. Let me begin along this road with some pretty bad news. So it is ridiculously hard to accomplish the aim of Tonglen, to master the practice. And that entails arriving in a place where you feel you have enough love in your life, where this overflows very easily and effortlessly and naturally to all other living creatures. And where your compassion allows you to feel with great intensity all the myriad of sufferings that all of such creatures endure. So I'm certainly not claiming to have accomplished this myself. Uh, cultivating and developing love, kindness, compassion is extremely difficult. And it takes a very, very long time. It takes an incredible amount of effort. And I think this is something which is true of all spiritual practices and which I always tend to emphasize, and that is that great subjective transformation is possible. It is desirable. You can do it through philosophy, through ethics, through spiritual practice, through the application of good techniques or practices. But it is difficult. It is possible, but only through time and with great effort and diligence. So any technique must be qualified with that caveat. And the measure of their success is in 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. So, you know, if you're roughly 25 years of age, you need to think, well, if I begin to do this now and I keep it up and I get better at it, how will I be at age 40? That's kind of a very rough timescale to think with here. So, you know, one needs more than the mere intention to begin. One also needs the patience and perseverance to keep persisting through time. And that is perhaps the real difficulty. And this sense of difficulty, this great persisting effort through a long time, is actually at the root of all the different spiritual techniques or methods, because all of them start from roughly the same premise. And this premise is that we are presently under the sway of very entrenched, seemingly intractable mental and emotional habits. And these are more or less contrary to or inconsistent with the kind of mental, emotional habit formations that we wish to have. And as I said last episode, it's these habit formations which actually underpins the kind of life that we actually live whether we have eudaimonia or not, to use the Aristotelian parlance, that is, whether we have a flourishing life or not, that depends on the kind of habit formations that we have. So we are starting from a place of lack, of not having the virtue or the disposition or the habit formations that we wish to have, and therefore not having the kind of life 
that we wish to have. So it's probably no surprise that people start getting interested in these sorts of things later in life when they experience a sense of failure or uncertainty about the trajectory their life is going on. That's kind of the place you need to be in to begin. So to undo these habits, to transform them into something more auspicious, more virtuous, well, that can't really even begin without seeing the immense power and seeming intractability of those presently existing habits or patterns. So we have to start from that place, and it's kind of akin to building a nice house in a mountain forest. So to build the house, you have to clear the forest first and flatten the land. And only then can you begin the actual construction of the house. So the point here is that some techniques are more like bulldozers and chainsaws, clearing the land, getting rid of the old patterns. And some are more like hammers and wood and nails, you know, actually constructing different kinds of formations. So returning to my example uh, I talked about in the previous episode, practicing Tonglen while sitting in traffic last episode. Just to remind you, this entails breathing in all the suffering of those around you in the form of black smoke, all the people stuck in their cars in bad moods, impatient suffering, and then breathing out all of your love, kindness, all of your virtues, all of your good aspects in the form of white light. It's a very, very powerful technique. So let's begin here. Let's widen this notion of sitting in traffic to include other things like sitting in airports or on planes or sitting on trains going to work or walking in city streets, shopping for groceries, basically being anywhere where there's a crowd of strangers in close proximity. We need to firstly see how we generally relate to these kinds of situations. That is, what is the forest here? What are the trees we need to clear? And I put it to you that indifference is really the main problem. It is the forest, being indifferent to strangers. Maybe there are a few blackberries of aversion too, which are prickly and prone to proliferation. That's that sense of being agitated by other people um, and kind of wanting to avoid them, having a sense of hostility. But I think indifference is probably the more pervading disposition. I want you to think for a moment about the price difference between a first-class seat on a long-haul flight and an economy fare. It's something like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars versus fifteen hundred $2,000, roughly tenfold. Now, this is partly about luxury and prestige and social class or economic class and sense pleasures of being able to sit in your seat and have nice salmon and French wine. It's partly about the physical body of having the space to stretch out in a really big seat which turns into a bed, or so I believe. Maybe it's quite a lot about this. But it is also manifestly about privacy. 
about getting away from a whole bunch of strangers that you would otherwise be forced to confront. So part of what makes a first-class airfare desirable and valuable and marketable is that it offers a chance to be in a privacy bubble where you, do not, where you don't have to encounter other strange people for 15 hours going to the same destination. Because that's inherently stressful, right? It's inherently unpleasant for some reason. Well, the point of this example is to examine that reason. Because this really is a forest that needs to be cleared. So long as strangers are objects to be avoided in our horizons, then love will necessarily be absent from the heart. And this is a really easy point to miss. Because we tend to think of love being focused on those people who are close to us, people that we are attracted to, that we know, that we have a history with. And I'm really widening this here. Think about what everyone in economy does. Well, the first thing is that everyone really wishes to be in first class, eating good salmon. And then being stuck there in, in economy class, basically most people do everything possible to avoid or escape the reality of being surrounded by strangers. So these days it's mostly taking refuge in the screen, playing games or watching movies, or one blocks out all the sounds with earphones, or reads or sleeps or stares out the window. And the basic ethos, the basic psychological approach is to kind of just get through until you land. And there's kind of an implicit mantra there the whole time going, avoid people, avoid people, avoid people, even though they are all around you. Now, the point of this example is to make it clear that our ingrained habitual patterns in relating to other strangers in close proximity is firstly to be indifferent or averse to them, and then secondly, on that basis, kind of shut ourselves away from them insofar as it's possible. So that seems to be the standard human response to encountering strangers in a crowd. And being on a plane is a particularly acute example. But I think the same principle is at play in more relaxed spaces. Places such as uh, walking through a city street or at a bus stop or something of that nature. Our default position is to act with indifference. Now, I put it to you, this is not what four or five-year-olds do. So if we did some experiment where we got a whole bunch of kids uh, and put them on a long-haul flight, I, I hasten to bet there would be a lot of relation, a lot of noise, a lot of making friends, a lot of playing together. Probably some fighting and maybe a fair bit of tears as well, but not much blocking out, not much willful indifference, putting up barriers, pretending the other kids don't exist. There might be some of that, but nowhere near as much as what adults do. So the whole orientation will be very different from how adults proceed. We proceed 
by mentally or emotionally blocking people out and kind of pretending they don't exist, that they're not there. Somehow, psychologically, we have to do that just to kind of get through. And my point is that we've really kind of learned to generate that kind of indifference. So it's a habit. It's a mental and emotional pattern. And that becomes a kind of cultural norm um, or a moray across different cultures. Maybe not all of them, but many of them, most of them perhaps. And the point here is that it's extremely hard to undo that. And this is the forest that needs to be cleared. Because love entails, you might say is, a kind of openness and a freedom of relation and a generosity in how you in interact with others. And it's a kind of impartial sense of interaction. So being indifferent is contrary or inconsistent or contradictory to love. Which means love cannot really arise where those mental and emotional tendencies of closure and separation and indifference are manifest. Now, I'm not suggesting that the aim of all of this is to board a long-haul flight in 15 years and be like Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama. The aim is simply to recognise the presence of entrenched habitual mental and emotional patterns which block or hinder the development of love. And that these are basically, or principally, indifference and aversion to other living creatures. This is the basic posture which we adopt and live with, and it's usually very, very deeply ingrained within us. It may be so deeply ingrained that we might assume they're actually permanent and natural, simply the way we are. And exploring more deeply on that line, you see that these attitudes of indifference are simultaneously attitudes of self-focus, self-concern, attachment to one's own pleasures and desires. I mean, that's first class, right? And aversion to one's own pains and sufferings, which is also first class. Fear of others, fear of rejection, fear of intrusion, of having to relate when you don't wish to. These are all basically egocentric concerns. So to be indifferent is to be egocentric. It is to maintain the illusion of a kind of fundamental separateness from others, which is indeed maintained. So that is, we do this very actively and intentionally, as well as habitually and unconsciously. It's working on both of those levels. And the implication here is that to develop or have love entails a dissolution or deconstruction of these egocentric concerns. It is the transformation of self-concern into a concern for others. In other words, genuine love is relational. It cannot occur if one remains in a bubble of egocentricity or narcissism. So love is much closer to what happens when that bubble is popped. It's the thing that emerges when that bubble no longer exists. So the question of technique or method comes in at this point. And I think it becomes much, much clearer. 
the technique for developing love is going to be precisely that which dissolves or deconstructs one's egocentric or self-grasping concerns. So Tonglen is 100% aimed at this. It is a technique or practice designed for this task alone, to pop that bubble. And it's very, very daunting for beginners to even contemplate doing this. If you're on the plane and a baby is crying three seats away, the very first thing you really want to do is just block it out and kind of pray that it stops, that its mama or dada will find some way to pacify it. Because the last thing you really want to do is encounter its suffering. To let its suffering touch you and to maybe even share in it. And that's what Tonglen will induce you into. To open up to the suffering of others rather than to block it out and shut it away. And that's for a baby, you know, a poor, cute, defenceless creature. What about the loud, ugly, fat, 50-year-old slob on his fourth beer for the hour, one row in front? None of us really want to encounter that. And I'm not going to lie to you, in those moments I also wish for a seat in first class. But here's the strange truth of the matter. You can actually experience much greater bliss and happiness practicing Tonglen for a baby and fat man in economy than you can eating salmon in first class. So let's leave aside the benefits for others and be completely selfish and hedonistic about it, which seems paradoxical. But for the sake of argument, let's go there. If we were to measure the respective pleasure of both things in terms of units of utility, I would say maybe the difference is something like a thousand to one. And there's actually scientific evidence to back this point up. Uh, the French Buddhist monk Mathieu Ricard has put himself forward for neurological studies and they earned him the title of the happiest man alive due to his dopamine levels. And that occurred when he was practicing this form of meditation, the Tonglen. So salmon on the palate lasts for a few seconds. Genuine love in the heart and compassion to others is much, much more pleasurable. And it can endure the whole flight and beyond. And it can expand, expand, expand. Almost infinitely. Now, gaining hedonistic pleasure is not the point. It's certainly not the aim of Tonglen. But the point is that it wins out in a competition with all the happiness that a first-class seat can offer. And whilst I presented some bad news before at the beginning of this in the form of the great difficulty and the time it takes to develop and generate genuine love in your being on a flight or anywhere, there is also some good news. And perhaps you've already been thinking about this a little bit. The good news is this. Sometimes on a long-haul flight, you make friends with a stranger sitting next to you. And usually there's quite a lot of politeness all the way through in the way people interact with each other. 
saying sorry when you have to crawl past someone on the way to the loo, keeping your seat up even though you would really like to recline it, considering the person behind you. There's often a sense of all being in this together and of most people trying their best to be relatively polite and considerate and well-intentioned. So on a good flight, there's normally quite a lot of social solidarity, some goodwill and friendliness and humour. And that is to say, there are always seeds or dispositions of love and compassion present in most of us. Seeds of other-centeredness. And these take place alongside the seeds of indifference and aversion and egocentricity. So the good news is really that we're not generating something out of thin air. We do kind of already have it, at least to some degree. But maybe we don't have enough of it. And we also have too much of the things which stand in the way of it. So the practice or technique is necessary to expand what we have and reduce what is in the way. Okay, so let's get out of the plane and take stock for a moment. I want to return to the spot the difference question I asked in the last episode. I asked, what is the difference between planting seed potatoes in the spring to harvest a crop of potatoes in the summer, studying engineering to get a job as an engineer, and going to the bar or swiping on Tinder to get love? And the point of that question was to shift our focus from thinking that love is something we get from someone else, a romantic partner in this instance, and instead being something that we ourselves develop and generate through time, through our actions, through causation. And this shift is central to the notion of technique. Because any technique which actually works to enable love will necessarily be a technique which shifts your attitude from getting to giving. From wanting something outside of you to cultivating something inside of you. So it's almost like there's a little switch in your brain. It's usually stuck on getting and being closed and it needs to be switched to giving and being open. So it's something like intentionality. So all techniques are principally about flicking that switch and then maintaining that orientation for a certain period of time, as long as you can. Because of the force of habit, the power of indifference in your continuum, the switch will always kind of naturally go back to the way it was. And that's why the measure of time for success is at least 10 to 15 years, because the techniques are themselves habits. And they only succeed when they become natural or ingrained. And that takes a very long time. So it is in fact possible to have the switch stay on giving and being open. And that's probably the ideal of Tonglen. That's what the Tonglen practitioner is trying to accomplish. And the technique is there to help them accomplish that. So we can get much more general at this point. 
the essence of all techniques or practices is intention and repetition. And this works because of causation, not in spite of it. So in a sense, the key here is understanding that habitual patterns will persist no matter what you do and no matter what they are. And that given this, it is best to generate good habits. It's really quite simple when you think about it in that way. The intention is a clear mental effort to flick the switch. It is an act of will, an act of thinking. Maybe a sense of awareness too. Three hours into the flight, now I'm in a place of indifference. I'm starting to feel really drained and bored and tired. I could start a new movie, or I could flick the switch and turn my orientation towards others. It actually only takes one moment to do this, to flick the switch. It's just one thought. And the repetition is to do it time and time again, so that eventually it becomes an intention that you know you have, that you're very familiar with, that you can draw on. It's not some arbitrary thing. It's not some experiment. It's an intention that you know is very powerful and effective. And that knowledge comes through repetition. So when we have an actual technique to work with, such as Tonglen, this will only work in the context of intention and repetition. There's no magical panacea. A technique that you find or someone gives you that just kind of magically works. It's by the sheer weight of accumulation that techniques are effective. How many times does, does a top 100 tennis player hit a ball with a racket? Or a concert pianist hit the piano keys with their fingers? Almost beyond counting. Good spiritual technique is not the slightest bit different. It works in the same way. It emerges only through immense repetition. I want to make one final point before I end the episode, which takes the form of a mild critique, and which I've been making fairly consistently throughout the series. And that is that spiritual practice or technique is very often synonymous with physical practice or technique, uh, particularly in our kind of more materialistic, secular context. And you don't have to look very far to find evidence of this. Maybe the practice of Hatha Yoga is the most salient example. A spiritual practice that had many different forms, but in its modern Western forms is really framed around the body. And then now a whole range of traditions in which Spiritual technique is most essentially a way of working with the body, from Tai Chi to Kum Ne to Reiki and all the rest. It's never normally the body alone. Almost all of them imply some kind of connection between mind or awareness and embodiment. And the practices are usually designed to kind of deepen that connection. I'm not criticising that approach at all. I think uh, most of those practices are really fruitful and wholesome and good practices. But the idea of applying spiritual techniques to mind itself or awareness itself, 
for some reason is much less appealing and can make people a bit suspicious or anxious. If you want to do something thoroughly depressing, try and find a copy of your local New Age or wellness newspaper or magazine. If you look through them, you see an enormous proliferation of materialistic approaches to spiritual practice and life. People selling gemstones, promoting superfoods and this diet and this therapy and that therapy, which are all based on or oriented either towards the body or some product that has a material form. And so the point is it's very hard to escape the sense that spiritual technique or practice is fundamentally a physical technique or practice. That spiritual life entails perfecting the body, accomplishing perfect health and fitness and well-being and maybe things like beauty and freedom and creativity and these sorts of things. And one of the primary reasons for this is because it's much easier to commodify or sell things connected to embodiment, including this technique or that technique or this product or that product. So if you want to make a living in this terrain, you have to go and learn or maybe even invent some kind of physical art or technique or product that you can easily present and sell to other people because it is tangible. Here it is. This is the practice. This is the healing art. This is the thing. It's there. It's real. It's empirical. So I can put a price on it. It has to be empirical to be commodifiable. You know, so people pay for yoga classes because it involves instruction for your body. But you cannot really do this with something like Tonglen, which I've been talking about. No one pays for those instructions. Or the Aristotelian or Confucian virtues. You can't really do that kind of thing with more abstract techniques which work with the mind directly. Techniques such as Mahamudra or Dzogchen. So there is something here we need to consider in our exploration of technique. And that is the tendency to reify the body and then miss or underplay or ignore the more cognitive aspects of spiritual practice or even going beyond cognition whether we call this the emotional mental habits, awareness, mind, rigpa, soul, or some other kind of name. So I'm going to pick up on this tangent in the next episode. And that's going to entail leaving in part the terrain of ethics and entering the domain of philosophy of mind. What is this thing we call mind? This thing which thinks, apprehends, knows. How might it be connected to causation, ethics, and technique? All that we've been discussing for the last four or five episodes. So that will be very tricky. But also very interesting. So I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening today. And stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.